listening to cycling stories it's like scrolling through instagram and seeing that person on their 35th vacation of the year even though you know it's fake you can't help but to admit you're jealous there are races that still bring out that same feeling of inadequacy but these races are based in reality this story occurred when the world was still black and white and bike racers made sure they always had a cigarette hanging from their lips before they would even think to throw a leg over the bike A blacksmith in his shop banged away on an anvil, probably making some sort of animal footwear, when suddenly a man burst through the door carrying a few bits that used to be a bicycle. The cyclist took over the hammer and pounded away on some iron until his bike was functioning again. A few Curly mustachioed men carrying clipboards watched to make sure the man was able to smithy the parts himself. In all their wisdom, they decided he cheated because the blacksmith's apprentice had helped stoke the furnace. While this isn't the most accurate portrayal of the story, the man is real. His name is Eugene Kristoff. And I believe he was the grittiest cyclist of all time. To substantiate this modest claim, I want to take you back to 1910, to the fourth edition of the Milan-San Remo, known as one of the toughest races in Europe. Murmurs of snow on the Tercino echoed in the ears of 63 riders as they sat on the cobbled avenue in Milan. Crowds of people gathered around in their dandy skimmer hats and tweed suits to watch the spectacle of human metal, just as the newspaper that put the race on intended. Eugene Kristoff headed on his way through the crowds. The cheers drowned away as the peloton left the center of the city. The stone thoroughfare gave way to the country roads. Thanks to Christophe's methodical ways, he kept diaries. He wrote, The roads were muddy and frozen, and we had to bounce along in the ruts, riding through the verges between that were spaced every 20 meters as far as Pavia. A quick Google search gave me all the bus routes, and I would guess because the pre-World War I highway wasn't a thing, it was about 30 miles of squishy riding through the grass. 130 kilometers into the frozen spring race, they hit the Torcino Pass. We got to the notorious cold at Torcino. The clouds were low, the countryside was unattractive, and we felt the cold more and more. While many don't find the unsightly beauty of an early spring landscape as daunting as Kristoff did, I know he had his reasons. 
If you go into your living room and look at your road bike, sitting warm and cozy, mocking your taste in wine, you'll see a very put-together gentleman built of carbon fiber and equipped with gears. While the heathen bikes of the 1910s huddled in the corner gnawing on a piece of raw meat made from steel that more likely would have been turned into a railroad spike. They made the bikes from the newest technology, the gusset. Stiff chains made the single gear a little clunky, and all the bearings were naturalists, exposing themselves to the muddy roads. Roads that angled themselves upward toward the cold, ominous clouds. We shivered, and every turn of the pedals was heavier. The half-melted snow made the race very hard, and we were struggling through the glacial wind. I dropped my friend Ernest Paul to get up to Ghana, whom I could see on the hairpins. Christoph wrote this. For him, the weather was just part of the race. Ernest Paul needs a little backstory so he doesn't sound like that friend who abandons the long ride at the first sign of a Starbucks. Paul had won a stage in the 1909 Tour de France, and later that year would win another stage. These weren't like the fluffy stages of today. These were 200-mile stages on those steel single speeds, with the only support being a mandatory cigarette and wine break in the town cafes. The man to beat, however was Luigi Ghana, the winner of the 1909 Giro d'Italia and the defending champion of the Milan-San Remo. The higher that Kristoff climbed, the deeper the icy wind would bite. The heavy snow created a wet slush that weighed down each turn of the crank. Close to the summit, I had to get off my bike because I started feeling bad. My fingers were rigid. My feet were numb. My legs stiff, and I was shaking continuously. I began walking and running to get my circulation back. Looking at the countryside, it was black, and the wind made a low, moaning noise. I'd have felt scared if I hadn't been used to bad weather and cyclocross. While most cyclists telling stories of their exploits in the most humble, truthful way, Christoph had actually a bit of a reputation amongst the masochists of cyclocross winning the French Cyclocross National Championships from 1909 to 1914. Then, after a pesky minor war, decided he would win it one more time in 1921. The tunnel at the top of the Turchino Pass was full of team assistants, huddled together, sheltered from the storm, and ready to hand their racer cigarettes and cognac to warm them up. Eugene found his team assistant, and, concerned about his own well-being, asked what the gap to the leader was. The assistant told him, just six minutes. Eugene Christoph saw his teammate and Belgian national champion, Cyril Van Howard, a blanket over his shoulders at the end of the tunnel. The two stared out into the blizzard. Howard was the leader of the race and told Christoph he would retire. With new confidence, Eugene Kristoff pedaled out into the snowy descent. 
his freezing body only getting worse. Then I had to stop with the stomach cramp, doubled up, one hand on my bike and the other on my stomach. I collapsed on a rock on the left side of the road. I was bitter with cold. All I could do was move my head a little from left to right and right to left. Flurries of snow and wind blasted him as he lay helpless on the side of the road. The last competitor he had seen quit the race miles behind him. Through the storm, there was hope. I saw a tiny house not far away, but I couldn't get there. I didn't realize what danger I was in. I had just one thought. Get to San Remo first, and I attached no importance to the pain I felt. There was a specific reason he wanted to get to San Remo before anyone else. The money. I thought, too, of my contract with the bike factory. I'd get double my wages and preems, and there'd be my 300 francs for first place. To put that in perspective, they paid factory workers 7 francs per day in 1910. That was $1.35 in U.S., so the prize alone would be about a half a year's wages for the average French worker. While Christophe sat in the snow, frozen and dreaming of financial freedom, a man trudged up the road and stumbled on a man-shaped snowball. He moved him through the blizzard into the small inn. Inside the inn were travelers who'd taken refuge, drinking wine and arguing over something that they would argue about in 1910 king, probably. Christoph peeled off his heavy soaked wool clothing and threw them over the warm, glowing fireplace. He thawed himself, covered in a blanket, as his clothes dripped muddy water on the floor. Some Italian guys tried not to make eye contact with the crazy naked Frenchman. Van Howard and Ernest Paul came into the inn together, both teammates of Christoph. They were so frozen, they put their hands into the flames. Ernest Paul lost a shoe without noticing. With other riders ahead of him, Christoph needed to get back on the bike. Naked, he began doing jumping jacks and toe touches to get the blood moving through his body, much to the dismay of the other patrons of the inn. I was there for 25 minutes. I saw four riders go by, or at least piles of mud. I pressed on. Ernest Paul said, you're crazy. And the innkeeper didn't want to let me go. I had to trick him by saying I would meet someone who could get me to San Remo by train. He slipped his wet wool kit back on, mustered his mental fortitude, fueled by a sweet payout, and went back into the cold. I set off and caught Kochi and Pavisi, and I got to the control just behind Ghana was setting off as I stopped. I set off again after Bausch told me I could win, and I passed Ghana at the edge of town, and I caught Albini a few kilometers later. Christoph pressed on. The warm Mediterranean air replaced the frigid mountain weather. His body fell into a rhythm. Each pedal stroke ground through the sand and mud that had covered his bike. On the side of the road, waiting at a train station, Christoph ran into one of his teammates. They swapped bikes, and Christoph made the last stretch to San Remo. Four racers 
out of the 63 finished the 1910 Milan-San Remo, cementing its place as one of the toughest prestige races to this day. In 2013, on the 104th edition of the race, the riders found themselves on the Trocino Pass in the same weather as Kristoff did, except with paved roads and snowplows. After the race, Kristoff spent the rest of the month in a hospital bed in San Remo, recovering from frostbite, and wouldn't return to the same level of fitness for another two years. Though, that didn't stop him from racking up two French cyclocross national titles during that time. The grueling conditions of the 1910 Milan-San Remo, with the machines they rode, the gear they wore, nearly no support, and an organization that had a vested interest in making the challenge of the race to be superhuman, to sell newspapers, made the 1910 Milan-San Remo the toughest race in history. To be a racer who can grit your teeth and push through the pain separates the best. To embrace the worst conditions thrown at you with the will to push through it, even if you might lose a limb, well, that is something that makes a racer truly special.